0: We're going to continue on in our series in Psalm 23. Yay, we made it to verse 2, and it's only week 3. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please stand and turn to Psalm 23. I'm going to read NLT again, and we'll discuss other translations in a minute. But Psalm 23, and it reads, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. A brief prayer. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that your word is you, that you guide us through your spirit. Will you illuminate the scripture to us so we can understand? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that gift and the many gifts that you bless us with. So Lord, as... As you prepare our hearts to receive your word as we have worshipped you through song and worship you through uh, the praise of what you are doing in San Francisco, we worship you now through your word. So again, prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. And we just bless you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. You may have a seat. We are on week three, verse two, the first part of verse two. So I, as I was considering this, I was thinking about if I went around and asked each one of you what time you woke up this morning, would you tell me the truth? Or would you exaggerate and say, oh, I've been up for hours. Now I don't know about women, but I do know a thing or two about men and we lie about what time we wake up. I mean, we go to a six o'clock Bible study. How long have you been awake? Oh, since three, easily. You still have sleep in your eye. <laughs> but really, what, what is it in us that we think that right from the beginning we have to start off? And granted, I know that some of you will say, I woke up, church starts at 10, I woke up at 9.45 and I just got here. But, but mostly in us, in our culture today, we have this desire to work hard, which isn't bad but we have this desire to find value in our work, which is bad. So if I asked you, perhaps not what time you woke up, but if I asked you how were you doing, how are you doing, you would say good, and I know I've talked about this before, or perhaps you would say busy, but good, or I'm good, but busy. I even practiced not saying this, and the first person who asked me how I was doing this morning, I said good, and I was like, oh, I lied, I can't, I'm actually really tired. But I'm good, but I'm busy, but I'm not. It's almost like a badge of honor that we wear. I'm busy, so I'm valuable. But when you consider this, when you think about this, I think one of, it, one of the things that drives us is actually fear and not love. Because the opposite of fear is love. Perfect love casts out all fear. But our fear of being called lazy. I know for me personally... That was something that I grew up with, that you will not be lazy. I can still hear my grandfather's voice. You will not be like your dad. My dad was a career criminal, so you will work hard. Yes, sir, I will not be my dad. What time did you wake up? Five. (laughs) The exaggeration of it all. But the fear of being called lazy or unsuccessful or that working hard always equals success. But within that, we know better, especially if you're a follower of Christ, especially if you've been following along with Psalm 23. But I know that deep down inside, and I would suggest that all of us know deep down inside, we don't actually rest unless we are with the Lord. And I'm not talking about the kind of guilt that leads us to resting in the Lord. It's the kind of a relationship where we desire to rest in the Lord. My favorite day in the week is whenever I take a Sabbath. And just to be clear, a Sabbath does not mean the whole time... I'm going to disappoint you. I know I'm a pastor, but I don't just hum and pray and meditate all day long. You know what I really like to do on my Sabbath? I like to wake up early and go play hockey. Shocker, right? And then on my way home, I prefer to eat peanut butter. Straight from the jar. Anyone want to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at my house, you're welcome to. I mean, honestly. And then I get home, and then I like to be with my family. I uh, like to drink too much coffee. Um, On my drive to go play hockey, I play in Sonora, which takes me an hour to go there. I love watching the sunrise. I love listening to as many sermons as I can on fast. So you know if you go on YouTube, this is how crazy it is. You can go on YouTube and adjust the playback speed, just like an audible. So I try to get through two sermons before I get to play hockey. Now this is just me. Now you think, that sounds like work. But I'm I'm talking about what's restful for me. So then I like to come home and I'm real excited when Natalie makes crepes. Not grapes, crepes. And not the good kind of chicken and spinach. I'm talking about more peanut butter (laughs) right? and banana. And then I like to not do anything. And then I like to play games with the kids. I like to go out on the walk, usually not without my, I usually like to leave my dog at home on the walk. And then I like to hang out and I like to watch movies. And then I like to talk about movies. And at some point I like to stay up late after the kids go to bed. And then I like to talk to Natalie and we hang out. And I like to eat a lot of food during that time. And I prefer that no one calls me. (laughs) But please do call me. (laughs) I uh, like to catch up on things. I like to read. I like to... um, Honestly, what I like to do is I like to, to slow down and read. I hate being interrupted, but I love being interrupted at the same time. Does that make sense? Does anyone like... ADHD, like me, do do right? I like to listen to music, watch a show, and read at the same time. Who thinks that's awful? God bless you. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs> no. um, I don't like to be alone. I, do, I, don't, I prefer not to be alone. Um, I, I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm up here, so... Um, <coughs> We spent some time. We, as the elders, we spent some time Friday night and Saturday, just really seeking the Lord and see how we can grow and what He wants for us and really spiritual formation. And uh, we spent uh, all evening together and all morning Saturday until about two. Um, so those San Francisco fans can go home and watch the game or whatever. But go Chargers! But um, I know. And then, uh, but I came home to an empty house and I was sad. You would think, I know you introverts are like, no, that's gold. It's gold. Like, take a nap. I was sad. I didn't know what to do with myself. I, I, I like to be around people. I like to be around my family. I like to pray. I like to continue to talk to the Lord just like he's my best friend sitting next to me. That's, that's a Sabbath for me. Now, I don't know what a Sabbath is for you. But my question is, to explain a Sabbath for me... Um, if I ask you what your Sabbath is and if you say you don't know, that's scary. It's probably because you don't experience it or you rush it or you're afraid to have it. You may not think this, but I think deep down inside, you think, well, God needs me, someone needs me. And, and truthfully, if I would end the sermon right here, which I'm not, I would say, the Lord doesn't need you, you need him, so chill. And relax. So this morning, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, wow, that, that sounds good. I want a Sabbath. Maybe less peanut butter, not any hockey, maybe alone, whatever it is. Consider what that looks like. And just fair warning, it's not a vacation you're going to take in a couple months. That's a vacation. That's not a Sabbath. That's a retreat. That's not a Sabbath. The Sabbath... According to God is once a week with Him, and not just praying, not just I'm going to read the whole Bible in a day or anything like that. It's what restores your soul, and I do think it's a glimpse of heaven. So as we consider this, and if you haven't been here, as we've been considering Psalm 23, the first week we looked at just that first part of the first verse: "The Lord is my shepherd." The Lord. I suggested that everyone has something that will be a Lord over them. Ideally, it's Christ, my shepherd. And as King David wrote, he recognized what a shepherd was. And we talked about the sheep, and we'll talk more about a sheep. The more I think about, the more that I study about sheep, the more I realize I'm so glad I don't have them. And then last week, we talked about I have all that I need or I shall not want, being content. Did anyone do their homework and write out anything they're thankful for? And and the main focus there was being at the shepherd's feet. The smell of his breath, the sweat on his brow, his movements. The description for me, and I know I mentioned it several times last week, is the shepherd God as he's drawing in a breath to stand up to move to the next thing. Were you that close with him this week? Now, if you're feeling guilty, this is not about guilt. The Holy Spirit doesn't. Guilt you into things. He prompts you. He reminds you. He nudges you in the ribs. But God has dealt with guilt on the cross. But conviction, that's perhaps. So what, what do we read here? King David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He recognizes that the Lord is his shepherd. I have all that I need. I'm very content. And the very next thing that he says, and then I get to work. Then I man up, or woman up. I don't know if women say woman up, but you get the point. King David says, he lets me rest in green meadows. NIV, the new King James ESV says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I like that description better. I think that does a better job of rendering or translating the original Hebrew. He makes me lie down it, it's a couple of words together. It's rabats. It's literally spelled or transliterated. R-A-W, bats. Now you won't forget it. It's a twofold meaning. It means he makes me. Physically, he makes me lie down. The word picture in Hebrew is, have you ever been training a dog and you push its hiney down? And it won't, but you're like, forcing it down and then once you train the dog you say sit ideally they sit still waiting for that but you, pu- you push the, the dog down and then it's kind of fighting you but you're going to win it's that and even in extreme cases it actually means knock the legs out from under you so what King David is saying I have all that I need and he makes me because King David knows because I won't rest he, he forces me down as i was studying about this i came across a video of a shepherd who showed how a shepherd actually makes a sheep lie down it, once they pushes down they won't lay down they reach behind the sheep grab behind the armpits and do a suplex to put it down because it won't lie down it's making you lie down it's it's forcing this lying down it's it's it's, it also means to sprawl out. So once you're down, I don't know about your dog, but once my dog lays down, it's, it's comfortable. The tongue's hanging out. Even with a toddler, perhaps you don't have trouble with your dog, but have you ever tried to put a toddler to bed? <laughs> you just keep popping up and then, and then you consider duct tape, but you know that's illegal, so you just, you just keep doing that. Hey, if you need a babysitter... <laughs> But you just, you just keep doing it. Maybe even a teenager. You know, you just, whatever it is. But it's that, it's that making. It's that continuing. It's not giving up. Which is key to what King David is actually saying. He says, the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. Like, he forces me. He's not going to just let me run off and do what I want. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. I have a picture of a pasture here. Let's take a look at it. Picture one. When you picture this green pasture, that seems fun, right? So at least whenever I consider a green pasture, this is what I think of. I think of sheep laying down in Scotland next to the water. And, and that's what I picture as a green pasture. But for David, for King David, this is his green pasture that he's describing. Behold the beauty. <laughs> This is in the Negev. This is where David would have, as he was growing up, taking care of his father's sheep. This is a green pasture. Now, to yourself, you should be thinking, well, where's the green? Well, it's there. But that's the point. Now, in the springtime, there's a little bit more green that you can see. But for the sheep, they are in a green pasture. It looks brown. But what does this tell you? It tells you that the shepherd has to lead them into places to find the green. Now, you may even be considering, well, they're in the desert. Well, I've been to Israel, you may say, and in the north there's such green, luscious field. That's true. But farmers and shepherds since, since Cain and Abel have never got along. If you're a farmer, I know we have some farmers in here, who wants some sheep to come and graze? Not a one. So the shepherd's job is to bring them and those little brown spots is actually the pasture, the green pasture. So sometimes the shepherd will have to roll rocks away for the sheep to get to them. So when King David was writing this out, he makes me lie down or rest in green pasture. That's it. So much for your cozy bed at home. But that's what he's talking about. And the way that, if you want to know, the Mediterranean, it's very humid in Israel, the Mediterranean the, the water from there, it collects on the rock from the humidity and it lands and it produces what they need. So when we consider this and we, look, we picture this, we picture the sheep lying down and they're not lying down right now because they're eating. And what was so revealing to me this week, at least for me, and maybe it's because I over talked about peanut butter already. But when I pictured this, when I, the first read, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows or he makes me lie down in green pastures. I picture sheep lying down and eating. I don't know anybody else that that's my picture. Just gorging out, laying down. Well, actually sheep don't eat when they're lying down. The only time a sheep would lie down to eat is if it's sick. So it's not about eating. And plus, spoiler alert, once we ever get to verse 5, verse 5 in Psalm 23 says, He prepares a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. So King David is not talking about second breakfast. Lord of the Rings in a bit. Uh, He's not talking about second breakfast. What he's actually talking about, what King David is actually talking about is representing abundance. So let's look at it this way. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall, I have all that I need. He lets me rest in his abundance. Doesn't that sound nice, to rest in Christ's abundance? Philip Keller, the guy that I've been quoting quite a bit from that book, a shepherd's view of Psalm 23, he says this, In the Christian life, in Christian's life, there is no substitute for keen awareness that my shepherd is nearby. There is nothing like Christ's presence to dispel the fear, the panic, the terror of the unknown. Anyone here this morning have some fear or panic or terror that they just pushed to the side to come to church? Philip Keller says that Christ's present dispels the fear. He goes on to say, each day with the unknown is always lurking. The unknown doesn't have to mean there is a lack of peace or rest for our soul. Although ideally for us, we want all the unknown to be dealt with and then we will experience this rest, this life without fear. But really at the heart of it, peace and rest, or a rested soul is not because all of the unknown has been revealed to us. It's because of the presence of someone. It's like this. Do you remember when you were a little kid, and if you had a good relationship with your father or grandfather or your mom, and you were scared, all you had to do is run and jump in bed with them? Or maybe, you were little, and you were in kindergarten, first grade, and, and um, you had the argument whose dad was better. My dad can up your dad, right? It's, it's, you didn't know the situation. All you knew is daddy was there or mom was there. This is what King David is actually talking about, this picture of he makes me lie down. And not because I am not in the wilderness as you saw by the rocks. It's because my dad is there. So the original audience to read this in the Torah and then into the Psalms would have understood and recognized, oh, the green pasture is not because it's so lush. It's because the shepherd is going to show me that I can lie down. So as we consider this I my hope this morning as we think about this in his book again and I think it's very applicable to us he writes on that there's four reasons or distractions why sheep don't lie down in green pastures. Now again Philip Keller he's an actual was an actual shepherd and his experience first being a missionary's kid in West Africa and then in Canada as a shepherd he wrote this down and specifically the reasons he's experienced why sheep don't actually lie down. And then from there, after we discuss that, for you note takers, we'll talk about Sabbath and quiet time and some ideas. And for those of you who are already dismissing the idea because you're thinking you don't know how busy I am. Let's consider this. So here's the four reasons for you note takers. Four reasons why sheep, actual sheep. Don't lie down in green pastures. Number one, chief reason. Number one is fear. Number two is there's friction with another sheep. The third one is pest or bugs. And the fourth one is hunger. So the four reasons why a sheep will not lie down is fear, friction with another sheep, pester bugs, and hunger. So let's just quickly consider this for a sheep and see if it's too difficult for us to see that it's our same reasons why we don't relax. The number one, fear. Fear. Sheep will not lie down if there's a predator. In his book, he talks about this whole story about coyotes coming, or excuse me, foxes coming in, and he had to grab his gun and run out there and how the sheep ran away and and the moment he says, he describes the scene, the moment he runs out there with his gun and his dog, the sheep stop even though there's a predator because they know, my daddy's gonna get them, they know storms anytime there's a storm they will not lay down, he says for the life of you you can go and try to flip a pancake of the sheep and they will not lay down during the storm from predators just simple fear he described sheep are the most fearful creatures ever he said they're the most needy creatures ever now let's just consider that sheep what about you how well do you rest when you're fearful how well do you rest when there was a storm anyone get the tornado alert anyone go right back to bed God bless you Anyone sleep through it? <laughs> Lucky. Right. Not worried about it. What about predators? Now, you may not think of a wolf necessarily, but there's danger. There's there's hard situations at work. There's, there's difficulties. Perhaps there's cancer, illness, sickness of any kind. That causes me to fear. It makes me not rest. Second one, let's consider... Friction with another sheep. He describes a scene that the sheep, the bully sheep, will go around and knock heads and push over another sheep. You saw the field, if someone's eating on a nice, beautiful piece of grass and the big sheep wants it, he, she runs over, he knocks over and eats it. He describes how if there's friction between two sheep, they will not lay down, they're anxious for the fight. He even describes a scene where two sheep were fighting one another and all he did is he st- stood out from behind the tree he was in and they stopped. You ever fought with a sibling? And Mom and dad comes home and you stop. You drop your weapons. What about fighting with your spouse? Ever fought with your spouse at a grocery store and then saw someone you knew and then you quickly held hands because everything's fine? Everything's fine. You fought, did anyone fight here on the way to church? Argued, yelled, and screamed. Then he took a moment to, we're at church. (laughs) The moment the shepherd appears, the friction starts. And also, just to consider, at least for us, as we are called sheep, um, part of the reason that the actual sheep fight is because it looks like they have a better green pasture than I do, and I think I deserve it. I know at least for me, when my eyes and my heart are focused on Christ, I don't care what other people have. But when my eyes and my heart start searching to take a look at what everybody else has, then I don't pay attention to the shepherd. And I know we talked about that last week with being content. Really, this, this takeaway, if you are at odds with anyone here this morning, deal with it. Forgive them. Don't wait for them to ask for forgiveness. Be honest. Don't go tell other people you're mad at them. Go right to the source. Keller goes on, Philip Keller goes on to explain that sometimes he has to take the bully sheep and have a stern word with it. To refocus, he says, my heart is for the little ones, the weak ones, the poor ones. But as soon as I correct the sheep, I let the sheep know that I love her and lead her to her own plant. But again, if there's any friction, deal with it. You won't find rest. You won't lie down in green bashes. The third one, pest and bugs. Parasites. And we'll cover this more in verse 5, specifically the anointing my head with oil. But a diligent, loving shepherd pays attention to his sheep. This is... For us as people, the primary work of the Holy Spirit in us. He, the Holy Spirit, is often described and represented by oil. And the Holy Spirit makes real to us and in us the very presence of Christ. But as the shepherd to a sheep, he describes, Keller that is, he describes how if a sheep won't lie down and he's not budding with, or she's not budding with another sheep and there's no... Uh, fear of any predators, I go and I look through her, through her wool, and in her nose and in her ears to see what pest may be there. He says, "Although she doesn't like it, she needs it." Now to be really gross, there's this bug, and I won't try to pronounce the name of the bug, but it lays eggs in the sheep's nose. That's disgusting. But without the love of a shepherd to clear it out, it will continue to eat at it. Doesn't that sound like sin? Sin that just eats at you, nibbles at you. And no, no one really wants to deal with sin, but we know how important it is to have sin dealt with. And as he describes, I have to flip over the sheep, grab her armpits, throw her down, comb through her wool, look in her nose and her ears and her eyes. I know what's best. And the last one, hunger. Again, sheep don't lie down to eat. They lie down to rest. And hunger, if he goes on, if all three are taken care of, then I know that she's still hungry. So I lead her to another pasture to eat. So hunger. And it's not just our bellies to be filled, but are you hungry? Are you hungry for God's word? Are you Hungry for something that's missing? Are you satisfied with your life? And really, I think for, for me, the freedom from fear satisfi- satisfies my hunger. And as I was considering this more and more, and as we, as we consider the Sabbath and having quiet time with the Lord, or however you want to call it, to walk with Jesus is to walk slow. The average mile per hour during this time period when Jesus walked the earth and even before with King David was three miles per hour maximum speed. Now we have cars, trains, planes, but you know what sped us up the most? It's the internet. Anyone have a hard time setting their phone down before they go to bed? To walk with Jesus is to walk a slow pace, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of my prayer. Hurry is the death of my work. Hurry is the death of me lying down. I've never been in a hurry and was nice about it. I don't know about you. Anyone try to get their kids ready this morning? My kids were ready on time. I was the slow one, to be completely honest. But have you ever been kind when you're in a hurry? When your kids were getting ready, where you're like, can you please put on your shoes and socks? That would be great because we're late. No, you yell, you scream, you throw the shoes around you. Say, no, why are you wearing the same socks you wore for the last three days? Where's your sweater? Have you ever gone to the store and looked back in the back of your car and saw that one of your kids didn't have shoes or socks? How did that happen? (laughs) Sorry, Target, we're walking through, barefooted and all. You hillbilly. Okay, but... <clears throat> That's never happened to Natalie. Only me, just for the record. But really, I found hurry is the death of my prayer life. Have you ever plan to spend some a longer prayer time, and the next thing you know, you look at the watch, and next thing you're like, uh, you really are planning out your prayer, and you really want to spend some time. You're like, dear God, thank you. Amen. I gotta go. What about reading through the Bible? Have you rushed through it, clicked on YouTube to speed up the Audible? Good thing they don't allow you to do that on the Bible app. But especially our lives with God is a slow walk. I slow down, then I'm less frantic, I'm less in a hurry. My quality time with God is slowing down. Pete Sikaziero, he's the one who wrote Emotional Healthy Church. We went through this as an elder board uh, just to recenter. And one of his quotes stuck with me. He, he wrote this, Rushing is violent to your soul and to those around you. Rushing causes you to sidestep the difficulty and eventually abandon the slow work of God. Ask yourself today, what might I be doing that God is not asking me to do? Dallas Willard, a uh, theologian from USC, he wrote this, we must arrange our lives so sin no longer looks good to us. And it must be done slowly. So as we consider this, as we consider, we I, I think we would all agree that we would love some quiet time with the Lord and that uh, we would love to have a Sabbath and probably you're fighting. Yeah, yeah, you don't know my schedule. I know I said this, but you got to do this, but... Why I think, one of the reasons why I think we as people, as Americans, Western society, whatever you want to call it, is because spiritual growth in the area of resting in the Lord is an invitation to maturity. It's not a command for morality. God does command us to rest. But, like so many other sins, the sins of omission of being with God is kind of socially acceptable. Especially on our grading scale. The harder you work, the more that you have, the better off you are. In the book by John Mark Comer, in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I haven't finished the book, but so far I can recommend it a thousand percent. Anyone in a hurry should read this. Read it, read it, read it. Okay. Uh, What I appreciate, side note, is that he's from a vineyard church. He started a vineyard church, so he is uh, more charismatic than I am, and I like to read people from different backgrounds and denominations, so that way I don't just sit in my stoic, whatever I am. But this is what he wrote about. He said, those who take a regular Sabbath live longer. On average, every Sabbath day that you take, is another day added to your life. The people who do have some of the longest expected lifespan are these people, and this is just in America, those who are seven-day Adventists, who hold the Sabbath tightly, and Jewish people who hold Shabbat, or the Sabbath. So... What is it about us and our nature to work hard and skip the rest and I'll make up for it on vacation or I'll sleep in three Saturdays from now or maybe I'll take a power nap? (laughs) Power nap? That just is like an appetizer without even actually having a meal. But that's just me. So in the 1700s, or excuse me, late 1600s, early 1700s, France tried to make the week a 10-day week. They felt that their productivity would increase. They were wrong. <clears throat> Ever hear of the French Revolution? And even considering, you know, we got to work harder, be harder, do better. Um, it has uh, psychologists have looked into this and have studied over the last 30 years that productivity drops off radically after working 55 hours. Meaning, if you work 60 or 70 hours, you are no more productive than if you only worked 55. Now, here's a little side note to that. That is not just your work at your job. It's work in your life, work at your home, whatever it is that you're doing. And if you go beyond that, you actually drop off productivity drastically. And in considering uh, overwork and not enough rest leads to depression, there have been great spikes in depression in the numbers throughout history. Here's just a few of when depression just went to an all-time high. When France did try to do the 10-day work week, another great spike was the invention of the light bulb. Light meant you could keep working longer. And the next, anyone want to guess? The invention of smartphones. I was reading this. 90% of all of you, of us, the very first thing we do is check our phone when we wake up. Now, before any of you say, yeah, but it's my alarm clock, it took that in consideration and still said that 90% of you check something, social media, email, or text. And I was considering this, the invention of the light bulb. I thought that was a great thing. I like electricity. I mean, I went on to be an electrical engineer, crying out loud. But then as I was looking into this, uh, people who were against the invention of the light bulb, one guy, and I can't see who said, said this, said, there is a reason why the sun rises slowly. There is a reason why the sun sets slowly, and it's beautiful. No one wants a flip of the switch and instant light. See, we've gotten out of this rhythm and cadence of God. And I'm not saying technology is bad, just that it could lead to being bad. So really, as we consider just quickly, just a time of rest, two reasons why we don't lie down in green pastures. One, there are no immediate results. You don't see it. You ever hear of the J-curve? It means whenever you start something, you start off strong, you lose results, and then eventually you'll catch up. That's why if any of you started going to the gym, and then you got on the scale, you were surprised that you actually gained weight. Wait a minute. But there's no immediate results to spending time with God. I mean, it feels good, but no immediate results specifically that people can see. But more than likely, it's a slow evident of fruit. The second is there's very little credit given to the outside world, including Christians, for those who rest well. Let's be honest. When you hear someone says that they got away to be with God, you roll your eyes and think, hippie. Right? You millennial, Gen X, Z, Y, whatever. You bum. You roll your eyes. I just spent time with God. And even my, the way that I said that. I just got away. You think, oh, get a job. Right? Work hard. But I think if we spend quality time in these green pastures, more often if we, if we rest in the recognition that only comes from our Father, we actually become rested and better people. However, there's this weird dichotomy of laying down in green pastures where we want to rest, but we have to prepare to rest. I mean, think about it. The reason, part of the reason you came to church this morning is because whatever you did last night, you went to bed at a time that allowed you to wake up. You didn't stay up. Well, maybe some of you did, but you didn't stay up all night long. You prepared, just like you have to prepare to go into time with God. And, but if you don't take regular time to be with the Lord and rest in green pastures, people will quickly recognize that you are exhausted and not just overworked and that you're drained on the level, a whole nother level. Just some considerations that I was thinking about in measuring how well, and I don't know if this is for you, but some good indicators for me to determine if I'm resting appropriately is how well do I handle interruptions? The second one is when I think of other people, what kind of things do I associate with them? The more rested I am, the more happy thoughts I think of you. The less rested I am, I think of the last annoying thing that someone or something said. You're probably better than me and don't do this, but this is just me. The third one is the things that normally bring me joy become a chore. I've realized that. I mentioned that, uh, you know, I wake up early, I try to go play hockey or go do something like that. Uh, couple months ago, I woke up and my alarm went off and I said, I don't want to play hockey. And then I said, who is this guy? Like, why does this sound so boring? There's a book that I'm really enjoying and I opened it up. I'm like, I don't want to, I just don't want to do anything. That is a sign that you're not well rested in the Lord. So, so now that I've totally made you depressed, let's consider why, just real quick, what it is and how we can do this. Obviously it started in Genesis. Genesis is where it all began. I I want us to read uh, Genesis 1, verse 31, the last verse in Genesis 1, verse 31. It said, Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, making it the sixth day. And then you turn the page to Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Let's read that. It says, So the creation of heavens and earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested or Sabbath from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work in creation. This is not foreign probably to all of you. Right? You probably are assuming, hey, God, even God rested, which I am. But one thing I wanted to point out, and at least it was new to me, you realize... Verse 3, it says, And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. That was the first time God declared something holy. That's a game changer. The first thing God blesses is the animals to be fruitful and to multiply, to produce life. The second thing he blesses in his creation is humans to multiply, to be blessed, to create life. The third thing he blesses is the Sabbath, but he, he declares it holy. The first thing that God ever declares, besides himself, is rest. So what does that mean? It means that it's a consecration set apart to be with, to make holy, to declare holy. The next time we see the word holy, if you're considering it in chronological order, is in Exodus. Whenever in Exodus, when Moses says, bring the children to be consecrated or to be made holy unto the Lord. In his work, Eugene Peterson's work, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity, Eugene Peterson is the one who did the loose translation, the Message Bible, which is fun to read. Um, He writes this in his book, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. He says, the Hebrew evening and morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake up and are called out to participate in God's creative action. We respond in faith and word, but always grace is previous. Grace is primary. We wake up into a world we did not make, into a salvation we did not earn. Evening. God begins without our help. His creative day. Morning. God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work he initiated. So just consider that real quick. Did you notice that after he created... It said evening pass and morning in the Hebrew calendar, the day started when the sun went down. So he created everything and then made it go to sleep. What does that say for us? He made us to rest and then work. King David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. I recognize that I I have all that I need. The first thing I'm going to do is rest. Doesn't that sound nice and peaceful? To rest. The day begins at night. We're sleeping. We're resting. We're in a dreamland. While God is speaking new mercies and creating new things, we do nothing to start the day. We only get to enter into what God had been doing all night long while we were sleeping. That should bring us great peace. Evening, then morning. The week begins with Sabbath, the day of rest. The day begins with God working all night long. So as Eugene Peterson puts it, he points out, you begin the Sabbath and the day of rest knowing that God has taken care of it. Just like the shepherd has already made a way through these green pastures, that once our bellies are filled, that we are not in conflict with one another, that there's no fear of the outside attack, that we're not hungry, that he's going to lead, lead us, we can rest. Because the reality is, is we're going to burnt out or we're going to crash and burn. Sickness will come. A car accident will come. Something will come and dramatically change the trajectory of our life. So just here, just real quick, some things if you're considering this. If you say, yes, I I want to start some kind of devotion time with the Lord or I want to um, have a Sabbath. uh, Start off small. The worst thing you can do is say, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a day or a year. Start off small. Perhaps read Psalm, a Psalm, and pray. And this is, this is what you can do, very basic Bible study, if you will. If you read a Psalm or a gospel, read a couple of verses, start there, and look for God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. Look for God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. And then look at what it says about man. And does this match up with my life? And do it. Can I live this in my livingness? Second one is don't become legalistic about it. Don't beat yourself over it. Don't say, i got to do better. Show yourself grace. It's interesting that Christianity is all based out of grace and mercy, but Christians can be the worst at showing grace to themselves. I'm guilty of that. Number three, prepare to rest. Put things in order and so that way you can rest. And if a day sounds too much to start off with, find a couple of things, a couple of hours that you can do. Don't wait for a vacation. Number four, don't wait for a vacation. I know I've tried to experience that and let's just say I'm on vacation for a week. By the time it's time to come home is whenever I feel I'm finally on vacation. But prepare to rest. Rest. Next one, don't expect to be an expert of rest overnight. Don't expect to be an expert of rest overnight. If this is a new foreign thing to you, don't expect you're going to get it right the first time. And the other one, I'm a big fan of, accountability. Have someone in your life ask you, did you rest this week? And then ask them, because as king david wrote the lord is my shepherd if god is indeed your lord and not your work not how much you have not what other people think of you if the lord is truly your shepherd he will be just like the father that the little boy runs to you and say my daddy can take care of it and if this sounds daunting it is daunting But it's so rewarding. Next week, we'll talk about how he leads me besides peaceful streams and see, we're not even got to the work yet. We haven't even began the work week yet, the work day yet. God's whole purpose is for us to bring glory. And the first thing we can do to bring him glory is to rest in him, to say, yes, dad, you can take care of it. Let's pray. God, Thank you for this time that we've had to worship you and, and it can be daunting for so many of us to even consider maybe not reading scripture or, or taking a devotional time but a day of rest every week can sound daunting. Lord, I just pray for anyone who thinks less of themselves for not doing it. This is not a shame message or a shame scripture. It's rest. It's, it's being at peace. It's bringing you glory. Thank you for the reminder that we see in Genesis that you created us and the first thing we did was rest. Lord, will you also help us not look at others and assume that the way they're doing it is better? Maybe we can take notes. Also, will you take away any judgmentalism that we may have being judgmental towards people um, that we may call them bums or other things, Lord? Lord, ultimately, we want to grow in the grace and the mercy, and and though you've requested, you demanded that we rest, Lord, um, we may chalk it up to an acceptable sin, but it's not, and you're not doing this as a punishment. It's because you rested. You, the God of the universe, rested on the seventh day to be with us, and not because you had to, but because you knew we would need to. So Lord, I just thank you for the comfort and peace that comes through your spirit, Lord. We just thank you. And as we sing some more songs to you, we just praise your name. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin, for your grace and your mercy, and your love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.